everybody, and welcome to this episode of Rise Up Voices from the Frontline. And I am your host, Krista Fee. And today I am doing something a little bit different than I normally do. And I am bringing to you someone who has extensive background and extensive knowledge on a topic that is right at the forefront of our cultural conversation. So right now, the movie Sound of Freedom has just come out, and my inbox has been absolutely full of people who are asking questions and who have concerns about human trafficking and crimes against children and sex abuse against children. So today's topic is going to be, um, dare I say, very sensitive, and we are going to confront this topic aggressively and without filter. So if this topic is too uncomfortable for you to hear, uh, this episode may not be for you. We will avoid extreme graphic details, but there will be some terminology and some conversation that is likely to be uncomfortable. So today's guest, Paul Collette, is working as a therapist at the moment, but has an extensive background in corrections and in working with numerous types of offenders and also does a lot of work with addiction recovery. So please welcome Paul Collette to the show. Hello. Hi, Krista. Thank you so much for having me on. It's such an honor to be here. Love the work you do. Thank you very much. Um, if I look a little tan, it's because I'm talking to you from Mexico right now, where I've been for the past four weeks, uh, down here with the family, decompressing, having a great time. Um, but at the same time, I'm also working uh, like I always do. So um, when when you and I connected on this, I, I, I had to jump at the opportunity. So once again, thank you very much. You are absolutely welcome. I don't have the privilege of talking to people that have such a diverse background very often. And I also very seldom run across people that have experience in crimes against children. I think I've done two other interviews with people that have done been immersed in this work. And law enforcement work is challenging to begin with. You see a lot of ugly stuff and, and you kind of get the worst in people. Um, but working in crimes against children is a whole different level of facing the darkness. So uh, let's start by just talking about some of the terminology that's current right now, uh, because the question keeps coming up. We're talking about human trafficking, right? So human trafficking, sex trafficking, and crimes against children are different. How do you define those those terms and what other terms would people need to know? Yeah, that's a great question. So oftentimes when we talk about human trafficking, we're talking about um, the sale um, and the delivery of human beings from one, one point of entry to another, right? Human trafficking, generally speaking, on the federal level um, deals with uh, bodies being transported over state lines you will. Uh, it's also a transnational, obviously, connection um, with uh, victims that are transported overseas from country to country. And it's uh, it's a market that is in huge demand, unfortunately. 
And when we talk about human trafficking, we also were referring to the sale of bodies and also the the bargaining, if you will, of what a human being is worth in terms of not just for sex, if you will, okay, or to be sexually exploited, but also other other skills that that person might have, okay? So it might mean um, here in the United States, uh, nail salons, for instance. Um, if you walk into a nail salon, especially here on the East Coast, um, they're filled with uh, people that do not speak English as a primary language, okay, as their first language. And oftentimes there are uh, nail salons that are filled with people that are here illegally, that are working off debts that they had to incur to come to this country, debts that they're never going to be able to get out, out from under. Um, there's massage parlors where there's also um, a lot of uh, sex work that goes on as well. Um, but there's people also that also have a certain set of skills that are exploited by other uh, organizations and individuals, not only here within the United States, but also outside the United States. So that's just one version of, we say, human trafficking. Um, we also have another version. We also have the exploitation of children. And that's sort of what my background was on the federal level. So previously what I used to be was I used to be a federal probation officer, United States probation officer. I was employed from 1997 until I retired in 2019. And uh, I started my career in what we call the Southern District of New York. I work for the federal judiciary. So the United States, is the government is divided into three branches, the executive, the judicial, and I'm black, um, the executive, judicial, and... Jesus Christ, I'm blocking one more. Well, I work for the judicial. And so what happened was, is I got hired by the judicial branch, which is the court system, all right? And as a federal probation officer, I worked for the judges. We served at the pleasure of the United States judges. And what that meant was um, we had to do one of at least three things as a federal probation officer. We did supervision. We supervised federal offenders. So somebody who's committed a federal crime. We also perform what we call pre-sentence investigations. So these are investigations on individuals that were arrested federally. So if they are arrested by, say, a three-letter agency like the FBI, the DEA, right, or Customs and Border Protection, um, if they were arrested by one of those agencies, generally speaking, that would become a federal crime. And so before they're sentenced in, in federal court, federal probation officers go in and they, and they do a pre-sentence investigation. And basically, it's just a background investigation on the offender. We look at the crime that they pled or were found guilty of. We looked at their background, their personal history, their characteristics as well. And then we presented that report and gave it to the judge, which would help the court arrive at a more informative decision about what the sentence may be. Right? And the other third piece is what federal probation officers do is we call pretrial supervision. So if an offender or a defendant, if you will, is out in the community getting about to be sentenced in federal court, we would come in and we'd supervise that individual to make sure that they stayed out of trouble. If they had a drug and alcohol problem, we would get them the help that they need. If they needed any mental health uh, treatment, we'd also get that for them as well. And we'd monitor their bail conditions or bond conditions to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing before they're sentenced. So that's three things, supervision, pre-sentence investigations, and pretrial supervision. I was hired originally as a pre-sentence investigator. So I would um, in the Southern District of New York, which is Manhattan and the Bronx and some of the upstate counties, um, my primary focus at the time was working with white collar offenders and organized crime. So the organized crime offenders would be the Russian mob, 
the Latin Kings, uh, a lot of the uh, gangs, if you will, that you hear of, and um, the Italians. So the Gambinos, still a sizable presence there in New York. Not as much as before, but we would get some of them periodically through the court system. And so I would perform background investigations, if you will, on them. After a few years of doing that, transferred to Houston, Texas, uh, where I lived for five years and loved it. Um, did supervision out there as well, also performed investigations. I was sort of a generalist at the time, still enjoying the work. Um, but it wasn't until I transferred back to the East Coast in 2006. That's when my career took a very drastic turn. Um, at the time, there were no sex offender specialists. It was a brand new field. What was occurring was is the Internet. The Internet had exploded upon the scene. And at that point, people started to recognize, hey, we can use the Internet to commit crimes. And part of those crimes was uh, child pornography. So what we were starting to see on the federal side is there were a lot of cases where um, we had, um, I'll call them offenders, uh, offenders where they would take videos, they would take photographs of children, um, they would share those images, they would perform with their victims and take videos of themselves. And what I quickly discovered when I first was promoted to that position, I was the first one in the entire state of Connecticut where I was living at the time, still living there. But I was the first one ever um, in the East Coast that actually was promoted to become a sex offender specialist. There weren't too many of us at the time nationally. And nobody knew what to do with this population other than it was an up and coming, we call it population. So um, a very unique niche, if you will. So they promoted me to that position. Ironically, nobody wanted to do it. So when I heard about the position, it was the availability. I was like, sounds interesting. Why not apply? A couple of weeks later, I got a call from the chief. Do you want the job? Sure, absolutely. Didn't find out, found out later, nobody else had applied. So my, uh, my exuberance was very short-lived, thinking that I beat out all these other candidates. Nobody wanted to touch this population. Nobody knew anything about it. So I sort of had to build up a program from the ground up. And in the beginning, I had to find my mentors nationally. I had to find people that were already embedded working with this. And many of my mentors are people that were working at, say, the FBI, um, U.S. Attorneys Crimes Against Children Task Force, um, other agencies, federal agencies, and some local agencies, which are doing great work to find out what the kind of work that they were doing. And so what I was seeing, what we were seeing at the time was sort of an explosion of what we call child pornography cases. And what was occurring was we were seeing a lot of videos in high definition with sound of children being sexually abused and sexually assaulted. And what happens is with a lot of these individuals, a lot of these offenders, is they generally don't like to operate in a vacuum. They like to collect what we call a series of collections. So much like, and I know this is going to sound vulgar, but this is the only thing you can compare it to. Much like somebody that collects baseball cards or has a hobby and they collect certain things, right, that they have a genuine interest in. People that collect and disseminate child pornography are very similar. Why? Because they have a sexual interest in a certain, we call, flavor. Okay, certain type of victimology. So I would see a 40-year-old white male offender who would only collect what he was sexually attracted to, which was in you know, one case was young boys ages four to six. All right. Very unique, very uh um a, a very 
niche-oriented collector. Not too many of those pictures he had access to. So what, what would they do? They would go on these internet forums, these chat rooms. They would uh, stream uh, with each other. They would share and disseminate. That's what they do. They collect, they share, and they trade to the tune of you know, gigabytes and terabytes of child pornography out there. And then they keep it. And then when they find something that's unique and interesting, it's they would offer whatever they had in their collection to another offender out there on the internet. So, hey, you know, I I'm looking for child pornography for a four, you know, on a four-year-old white white child male. Okay. Um, do you have any of that? And the other person on the other end would say, Yeah, actually I have some on my hard drive. Um, do you have what I'm interested in? And that might be a 13-year-old girl, da, 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 da. Actually, I do. I have some too in my collection. Let's trade. And what would happen was is that we're seeing a lot of this internet traffic starting to build up. And fortunately, the federal government was starting to develop a lot of tools out there uh, to, to be able to intercept this. Uh, a lot of undercover work that was occurring, a lot of so which, which was basically federal agents pretending to be, you know, a 13-year-old girl on the internet, you know, they, to catch a predator stuff. A lot of it worked. So for me, at the time when I was promoted to this position, I was starting to get federal offenders that were being newly arrested for the very first time going into the system and some that were starting to come out of the system and needed to be supervised. So I was having to supervise these offenders. And part of what I had to do, unfortunately, was uh, I had to get into their head. I had to learn what made them tick. you know. And it was a very ugly ugly world dealing with men like that. And by the way, just just so you know, on the federal side, uh, the vast majority of federal sex offenders are white males. I would say 90 to 95% of federal sex offenders that have been arrested and convicted um, that I've dealt with in my 22 plus year career um, are white males, usually um, minimum high school graduate, all the way up to college professionals, Many are fathers, families, um, and um, have positions of trust out in the community as well. Right. They position themselves in a way that gives them access to that which they desire. So they, yeah. it's, it's very hard, I think, for the general community to understand that my pastor or my youth, my youth counselor or, you know, a school teacher could possibly be an offender, but if you think about the idea of how do I get as close to what I'm looking for as possible, those careers are very desirable. And we're talking about highly intelligent individuals more often than not. This is not a crime for uh, idiots. They, they go long periods of time without being caught. They are capable of understanding, you know, all of these different computer programs and how to how to do backdoor stuff and how to protect themselves and there's layers upon layers upon layers of uh, protections that they set up for themselves and it's we're not talking about stupid people we're talking about the guy next door who it seems completely normal who has a successful job who has a wife and kids of his own and and he looks just like everyone else. And I think that's a really important point that you can't, generally speaking, of course, we have to make some broad sweeping uh, comments here, but 
generally speaking, you're not gonna, he's not the creepy guy that you're gonna uh, see at the park and go, that's a creeper. He's the guy that's playing with his own kids at the park and seems completely normal. So not to scare anyone or not to say that, uh, I just want you to have an idea in your head that, that they look like criminals or that it's easy to tell that someone's creeping on kids or <laughs> they are normal people most more often than that. Yeah, uh, my experience was uh, only a tiny piece of what you experienced. So I don't, I don't even, I was only in it briefly and I was doing forensic investigations and basically the conversation and some photo sharing and some things like that. But I never had to watch extensive amounts of video and I can't even imagine the toll that that would take on someone. Um, just the, the brief experience that I had was so much that the movie coming out has basically triggered me into stress. Like I, I'm sitting here having all these flashbacks of, of photos and, and moments and I'm stressed out about it. So how, how are you doing? Well, that's a great question, and I love that because um, the the idea that you can do this job in any capacity of working with this population and not come out unscathed is ludicrous. Okay, you're going to get impacted. It's going to negatively impact some part of your life. Okay, you start to look at society. And many ways as um, corrupt, as as untrustworthy. You you said it, Krista, and I love how you said it. Um, it's not the monster that's hiding in the bushes that we need to be watching out for. It's the it's the monster that we willingly open the door and let into our homes. And that's why this population that I worked with was so good. We call it grooming. Right. And there's a reason why we call it, we, we, we coined that term. It's grooming behavior. It's their camouflage. It's, it's the white male who's got a college degree, who's the father, who's the little league coach, right? Who's got access to more than one child. Um, and it's the male, God forbid, and I hate saying it, but it's the male babysitter that people hire to come into your house to watch your kids. Okay. That is, that is. I, you know, and this is my own professional experience. Okay. I'm not in, you know, if there's any male babysitters out there, don't, don't call me up. Okay. Or email me and it's sort of yelling at me. I was like, stop. All right. In my experience, these offenders will go to where they have access to children and it will be the school bus drivers. It will be the little league coaches. It will be the priest. It will be the high school teachers, the elementary the daycare workers, the male babysitters. It will be, um, you know, and, and it, it, it'll be Uncle Joe, who's really good with balloon animals at the kids' parties, hanging out with the kids all by, the, all by himself, okay? And it's the family members that have been so groomed that even after these men are arrested, they still refuse to believe that Uncle Rick could ever harm a child. And I have lost count of how many times I've been in court, right? On the day that the uh, you know FBI brings in somebody newly arrested, right? And the day one, all the family's there, the wife is there, the uh, you know the the cousins are there, the, the 
brothers and sisters are all there as the defendant is brought up in front of the judge. And they're all like willing to put up whatever they got to do to get this person out, right? And they're going to agree to any kind of bond conditions. And then as the U.S. attorney, the assistant U.S. attorney is now reading the charges. And you start, and I'm looking at their family. And as they start to, their eyes are opening, I'm like, holy shit, he did what? These are the allegations. And then by the time that person is sentenced, generally, generally speaking, most federal cases take anywhere between six to nine months before there's some type of resolution, right? Um, most cases, if they are brought by the government, are resolved by a plea bargain, okay? Because the U.S. Attorney's Office is not going to prosecute cases that, 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 are, that are not winnable. So when they take a case from an agent out there, they know they've got this defendant dead to right. Okay. So those cases are going to be pled out about 85, 90% of the time, I think. That's a good number. And so the day that they're arrested, all the families there, the day that they're sentenced, nobody. They're all alone. And the, uh, their attorney's standing right next to them. And they're like, Your Honor, you know, he's got this fully family support. And here's all these wonderful letters. And the judge is looking out like, Where are they? You know, they're all alone. Why? Because at this point, the family's written that person off in many cases. Okay. But it's like you said, and we could talk about that also in this conversation, you know, or maybe another podcast. It's um, there are also another group of individuals out there that don't care. They don't care what this person did. You know, there are spouses out there that will willingly allow their, this sex offender access to their children. You know, I have lost count, Krista, of how many men that were on federal supervision that I was having to supervise that had done some horrible things to children. And they meet single mothers with little kids. And as part of my job is I had to speak to these women and say, listen, um, do you know what Rick did? Do you know why he's on federal supervision and why he went away for 10 years? And um, I asked them to tell me to my face exactly what he said. And what happens is a lot of these offenders, sex offenders, when they meet somebody, this is the grooming behavior, they don't tell them immediately, right? They get the buy-in. They wine and dine these single women, um, these single mother, I'm sorry, single mothers. Um, they, you know, present themselves as, you know, this, this knight in shining armor. And then... After this buy-in, after the women have formed sort of an emotional connection with them, then they spring it on them. You know, honey, I just want to let you know, um, I, I, I got in some trouble some time ago, you know, and I, I was downloading some songs and there was some, you know, some photographs in there and it was some child pornography. I know it's crazy. I, I didn't know. It's just, it's, it's just ridiculous. But, you know, I was just trying to get all this music for myself and there was these videos in there. I had no idea it was in this mix that I was streaming in and you know blah 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 you know or some other ridiculous excuse um and then at that point i got to step in and say well now we got to go to the judge because this person now is going to move into this house where he is going to have access to her children you know and that's a whole other can of worms that we had to deal with also federally um so that takes a toll on you it's not a nine to five job krista you're always on you're always working you know, and PTSD is very real for people like like that who who end up doing these types of cases, doing these types of um, 
investigations and supervision. I was the only one for eight years. I had no help doing it. Um, my, my managers, my chief, my deputy chief, my supervisor were not there for me. And these were the worst people in the world. And I'm happy to say it. I'm not going to say their names. I hope they're watching. You know who you are um, that were not there when I was going through what I was going towards the end of that period of time in my life. Because I was the only one. And I went to the chief and I said, listen, we need some training on this. I'm getting secondary trauma. I can't take my kids to, to Six Flags or the playground without clocking some you know, old dude sitting on a bench watching a little girl go down the slide because I think he's a sex offender, you know, watching her skirt go up. You know, it's the reality is it's grandpa taking his grandchild to, but that's not where my mind goes or kick my kids to Chuck E. Cheese. And I'm clocking, you know, dudes walking through there thinking that they're there to, you know, find a child to, to assault. No, they're just parents chasing their kids around. So, you know, that's how it starts after a while. And you're unable to disconnect. And, and not only that, the job isn't a nine to five job. Anyone who does this as a career, willingly does it as a career, is going to have to know what you're getting yourself into. This is not a nine to five job. You are always going to be connected. Right. Always right. Going to be, there's always going to be a violation. There's always going to be a new investigation. There's always going to be another victim out there. And it's going to happen on your watch. If you're a probation officer or parole officer and you're supervising these people, Somebody's going to get hurt on your watch. And then what are you going to do? How are you going to deal with that? Are you going to blame yourself? You know, are you going to say I could have done more? Because guess what? Management's going to look at you like that. And they're going to say, oh, where were you? Why weren't you doing it? Because you know why? I was, I was in Mexico for a week, my first vacation in three years. You know, I'm sorry. Maybe we should only supervise nice people. <laughs> so... So I'm going to ask you a question and you are absolutely welcome to say that this is not okay because I'm going to actually ask a very personal question. I, I kind of noted as we're talking about these people that we're talking about people who are, are clever and who are charming and who are oftentimes the guy next door. As you're supervising these people, how do you balance that in your brain? How do you balance that in your mind that some of these people you like, some of these people you're building relationships with just by the nature of the beast. How do you manage that moral conundrum of keeping in the forefront of your mind at all times what they've done and what your job is at the same time that you're spending so much time with people and building relationships? Building relationships with the offender as I'm supervising. Right. right. As I'm, you're supervising, I'm, you have to build that trust. So yeah. Um, I love that question. I love that question. Uh, and I'm going to be completely vulnerable. There were SOs, sex offenders, that I actually liked. There were men out there that if was not for what they had done or what they were, you know, what they were attracted to. These are guys that I could have had a beer with. I could have had a cigar with. I, these guys could have been really good friends. You know, um, you have to be obviously a professional. Um, at the same time, you just can't go into this work and always be on the defensive, always be aggressive. You know, you have to build a rapport. You have to build relationships with these men because, you know, some of these guys are on lifetime supervision. So minimum of three years on a federal side, five, usually five years, 15, 10 lifetime supervision. 
And I, I've had offenders come out of federal prison and I'm looking at their offenses and, and I'm like, oh, congratulations. Your probation officer hasn't even been born yet. That's, that's a deep that these guys are on lifetime supervision and are never getting off. So their probation officer um, is probably in elementary school. And in the next 15 years, they'll still be on supervision. I'm going to be like I am now sitting on the beach in Mexico, smoking a cigar and having a cocktail, thinking, thanking God I got out of this with my sanity intact. But there are, yeah, there are a lot of people out there that you generally like. And, and, you know, and I, you know, I really appreciate that question because I oftentimes questioned is something wrong with me? You know, how do I find myself, you know, sitting with a, with an offender in my office for 30 minutes, um, who, who is only sexually attracted to seven-year-old girls, you know, and yet here we are shooting the shit about some movie that just came out, you know, we're talking about a video game that we played recently, you know, and it's just like, it, 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 these are human beings, you know, and in, in many cases, you know, I once worked with a federal public defender, brilliant man, who I, I m m called one of his clients a monster and he called me out on it. He says, it's not a monster. He just has monstrous behavior. And I appreciated that, you know, and I, and I, as I got older in my career, I started to become more, I'm going to say more woke, more aware of what was important for my own self-preservation and being angry all the time and looking at these people as um, less than human beings. That's a dangerous road to go down because when you start doing that, you start missing things. You start missing things about, um, are they going to reoffend? Are, are, are when you're doing a home visit, you know, on these non-traditional hours, when you're walking into their house, if you're only looking for the bad and you're missing the good, you're not getting the whole profile of the kind of person that you're supervising and that they are reoffending, you know? So, you know, I mean, that's why you have to build these conversations and build relationships. What are they interested in? What are their hobbies? You know, you don't ask them those questions. You're not going to know where they're hanging out now. You know, that's why I, I love to play video games. I got a PS, PS5 at home. I do computer games too as well. Um, and that's something that I'm proud to have, you know, built a rapport with many of my sex offenders. It's like they also play video games. They go online. They hang out with children, teenagers. They try to build What games do you play? Right. And, you know, getting that background information is extremely important because in law enforcement, we call that intelligence. Okay. okay. And we need to build a complete. Just remember, Paul is in Mexico, so we have a little bit of hiccups with the Internet. Was oh, that me? Okay. How are we, we doing better now? I just saw it. The spin. We, we got you back. Good. Um, so that's an interesting point because I've talked to a lot of parents and I, I do some uh, some presentations occasionally on how to protect your kids and teaching teenagers what things are danger places. And you mentioned video games and a lot of parents are absolutely stunned to find out that uh, their kids are vulnerable with their video games, which to, to my brain, of course, is obvious because anything on the internet is a connection zone. So uh, is there anything that you would uh, say about the vulnerability of internet access, computers, video games? Like yeah, how is that a tool? I love that question. It, it starts with the family. It starts with the parents. 
that that's where the that's where the victimology start victimology 101 begins um children are sorry sex offenders are really good at finding vulnerable victims and how do they find vulnerable victims they look for broken broken children they look for broken homes right um they look for overwhelmed single parents that um, are working two or three jobs that come home late at night that are just so exhausted that they're looking for anybody to come in and help out um, i had a very very bad guy on my caseload and um you know he's doing i think he's dead now i'm not going to mention his name but i don't care if i do it but whatever but he he met his victims at a home depot and what he would do is he would hang out in the carpet you know the uh, the wood section right and he would just walk them down the aisles and he would look for um women with their kids with them particularly young boys right and he would just sort of eavesdrop on their conversations he would you know maybe strike up a conversation and one day he saw a woman there and she was looking at some wood and he walked up to her and he says hey you know can i help you you seem kind of overwhelmed right now and he kind of dressed like he actually worked there and that was part of the camouflage like she meet she initially thought oh he works here yeah i'm gonna you know and he goes oh well you know what actually um i'm looking for um I'm building a, uh, what do you say? I'm building a, uh, a, a cabinet at home and it's in my kitchen. And, uh, you know, her son was right there. He was like eight years old or something like that. And he goes, um, tell you what, would you mind? Why don't you and your son come over? Um, I'll pay him. Maybe he'll get some carpentry skills. And she's like, oh, that's great. So she came over with him. They hung out. Um, then as the evening is going on, she's like, I got to go to work. Um, I work at night. I work, she was working at Dunkin' Donuts. She was working like the graveyard shift. And he's like, well, why don't you have your son stay here? I have another bedroom. And in the morning when he wakes up, you know, I'll put him to work again. I'll feed him, make him breakfast and uh, he'll come up with some more skills and he'll have some money in his pocket. And the kid was like, oh, this is great. This is so cool. This guy's really nice. And the woman's like, yeah, great. I can have a little break. That night he sexually assaulted him. You know, so it, it, you know, and you look at that from the outside and you say, there's no children. Okay. I don't care what age they are to spend the night at another dude's house. They, it's no way, but he was really good at grooming and he really identified, you know, how overwhelmed and vulnerable this woman was. And, uh, thank God, you know, he's, you know, federal prison for the rest of his life for what he did. But uh, and part of the whole nexus, why, why it became a federal crime is after the police were called, after the assault occurred, um, when the um, officers went in to do their, their arrest, and then they subsequently found in one of the bedrooms boxes of just child pornography, magazines, photographs, eight millimeter videos, old film. I mean, he had generations of different technology from photos all the way up to, you know, laser disc at the time when he was arrested. Um, and it was just thousands and thousands of images and videos, and he was in some of them as well. So that's how he ended up getting federally convicted as well. But yeah, so it you know they're they're out there, and um, I'm not saying that you know we we need to be 100% always looking you know and be paranoid out there, but we need to have we need to be a little educated here, and I'll be aware that you know these people are really good at what they do. They're really good at finding vulnerable people and finding the pressure points in somebody. How can they get access to them? Is it money? Is it a relationship? 
is it, you know, if you're a single person and you're lonely, right, this offender may be presenting himself to be interested in you, right? But he's really not interested in you. He wants access to your kids, but he's going to play the long game to get access to those kids as well. Um, and another thing is just ask questions of people. You know, um, oftentimes what happens is we don't want to ask questions about somebody's background because we're Americans and we're very polite for the most case. You know, when we're very protective about our privacy and, you know, sex offenders pride themselves on that. They pride themselves on taking advantage of polite conversation. When I would sit down with a sex offender, excuse my language, I would say, what gets you off? You know, when you masturbate, what do you think about? And they were like, oh, I, what are you talking about? I, I, I want to speak to your supervisor. I'm like, no, that's, listen, if you're going to supervise somebody that's addicted to, say, drugs, right, what do we do? We look for evidence of substance use. We look, we have them piss in a cup. We, when we do home visits, we look for, you know, bongs and rolling papers. And, you know, if they're an alcoholic, we look for beer cans in the front yard and in the fridge. And, you know, all these things, we smell odor, you know, we look for evidence of, that, they're, that they have relapsed. Well, sex offenders are the same way. We look for evidence that they're relapsing and what they're interested in. I would go into a house and you know their TV set would be turned off and I'd turn on their TV and it would be on Dora the Explorer. They're watching children's cartoons. You know, it's like, okay, now I know. I got another piece of information I need to... That's not necessarily... It's not going to be um, a violation for them. But it's definitely more information that's painting a broader picture that this person is starting to go down that road of they're going to relapse again. They're going to commit another offense. And as a probation officer, I need to do something about that. So we manage them, by the way, on the federal side. You know, you, you, you can't rehabilitate them. You, you can't make some you can't tell somebody if you're attracted to a certain type of person. Hey, listen, you know, you're going to go from tomorrow being attracted to you know, somebody that's the same race and around your age and this gender to being, you can only be attracted to, you know, you can't say that to somebody any more than I can say to somebody who enjoys ice cream. Hey, you love vanilla ice cream. Well, you know what? From now on, you can't have that anymore. You can only have chocolate ice cream. They're always going to love vanilla ice cream. Well, sex offenders are just like that. They have what they have, what they're interested in. They love that flavor. Okay. Just because you tell them they can't do it anymore doesn't mean that they're not thinking about it. And that's part of what you were talking about, Krista, is you have to build these relationships. So as long as my guys were talking to me and telling me, and this is how distasteful it is, they, they would tell me their fantasies oftentimes. You know, they would tell me what gets them off. And, you know, and I have to sit there and listen, you know, and, and, and be polite and, you know, okay, oh, you know, that's, that's really interesting, Rick. And, Glad you're not doing that anymore. No, let's let's get you back in treatment. You know, let's let's give you another polygraph to make sure you haven't committed another offense. And you know, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I'll continue to show up unannounced at night, visiting you. And um, but uh, I, uh, you know, it was just a matter of time. You know, and this is what also people need to be aware of. Um, I've had many offenders who have been arrested for, say, just possession, just possession of child pornography. Nobody got hurt. Well, that's bullshit, okay? Because every time one of those guys would possess child pornography, they're victimizing that person over and over and over and over again, right? And many of those we call series of photographs, um, many of those victims are now fully formed adults. 
they're not children anymore. They're grown up and in many cases they've been saved and they've been rescued and they're living normal lives, hopefully, you know. Um, and I've met many of them you know, later on in life. So that was really good because I would look at some of this child for pornography when I was first starting out. I'm in his, in his lab um, and I'm looking at this stuff and I remember getting really angry. Like my, my fists were all balled up and I'm like, I, I, I can't believe, you know, hearing this child screaming as he's being sexually assaulted and the agent put his hand on me and he's like, you know, Paul, listen, this happened 10 years ago. He's okay. He's, he's fine. It's over. You need to understand that. And I was like, oh, okay. Once he said that, now things sort of were put in more perspective. This is not happening in real time. So now I get it. Now I understand. But he's still going to be a victim for the rest of his life because these images, once, as you know, once they're out there on the internet, can't get them back. You know, and they're always being out, they're always out there, they're always being re-victimized over and over again. Because once these images and videos are found on an offender's hard drive or phone, the agents typically will reach out, the US attorney's office will reach out to that victim and say, Hey, by by the way, um, we found another series of your of your videos on this person's hard drive. And um, they let them know because they're victims and that victim has a right. And many cases, by the way, the victims now have attorneys and they go out and they sue. They're suing these offenders again, taking their pensions, taking their money, taking their homes, taking their cars as well they should. So just another thing for our people out here who are newly recognizing the, the vastness of this problem. Uh, there's a lot of neighborhood watch apps and things like that. So people can go and see how many sex offenders, how many registered sex offenders are in their neighborhood. What does that information mean to them? Like it's what do recidivism rates look like? And uh, like how much of a risk does that pose for people to have a, a sex offender in their, in their community, in their neighborhood? I, I'm going to say something that might be a little controversial, but this is based on my professional experience. Very little. Sex offender registries really don't work. Um, and I'll tell you why they don't work. Because it's not those individuals, as I said before, we need to be aware of. We need to be aware of the people that we let into our lives. Okay? We, those are the people that we always need to be protected. There we go. In my neighborhood, I have a sex offender. You know, and he's not a federal one. He's actually a state. He's a violent one. It was, uh, I think it was sexual assault too or something like that. And, um, you know, they have his picture there and they have his address. That's great. But it's like my kids are in no, in no, in no world are my kids going to go to his house or are they ever going to go to anyone's house that I, I'm not aware of. He's not the, he's not the issue to me. The issue to me is it's the after school activities that my children are involved in. The issue is, is that, you know, you know, when, when my daughters are old enough to do sports, am I going to vet? Am I going to keep an eye on the coaches? you damn right I am. Okay. So registries are, I think registries are more for, I don't know. I think they're just more to keep people, um, give them the illusion that these things work. Okay. Um, you know, the... Really, there are laws in place that if you've been convicted of a sex offense, 
right? We, we call that third party risk. Those people should not ever for the rest of their lives ever have a position where um, they've assumed a position of trust over children, right? So, you know, and, and the funny thing is many of them try. I've had sex offenders that actually have applied to become school bus drivers. You know, I've had a sex offender that wanted to open up his own internet cafe. You know, I had a sex offender that he wanted to, um, what did he want to do? He wanted to become a, uh, a therapist, you know? And I was just like, no, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. And part of what, and they know that they know that they're not going to be, they're not, they're not going to drive school buses ever, you know, but they're going to try. They're going to test the system to see if they can get away with it. And, you know, we owe it to ourselves as a family. We owe it to ourselves as parents, as protectors, to always ask the questions of the people that are around our children. You know, hey, don't be afraid to ask somebody, why did you decide you wanted to become a coach? You know, why, why do you like hanging out with children much more than you like hanging out with adults, it seems? You know? It's, it's not a bad question to ask. And there are different ways you can phrase it. But in my experience, and this is where my own trauma comes in, Krista, my own PTSD, is, yeah, I'm really suspicious now of people that have those types of positions. You know? Um, why, you know, you're 17 years old. Why, why are you advertising yourself as a male babysitter? Explain that to me. Because you're sure as hell not going to have access to my four-year-old daughter. In no world is that ever going to happen. You may be the nicest guy in the world, and maybe you're going to be. Maybe you are a great babysitter, but I've seen too many of these cases, you know, in real world, in the real world, that go south. So we need to keep our children safe, and not only our children safe, but also our adults as we get older, you know, and we travel overseas, and we. You know, and we involve ourselves in business dealings and we, you know, and we, we expand our circle of friends to include people that are, you know, from elsewhere and what kind of backgrounds, you know, you know, when you meet somebody in a bar or you, you meet a friend, we ask questions about your life. And, you know, that's what I always ask. I ask people about their backgrounds. You know, who are you? Why, why did you, Krista, why did you want to become a therapist? You know, why this podcast? You know, and, and I love these questions. I love to answer. We love as people, especially in the United States, we love to talk about ourselves. Go to any bar and sit down at a bar. Within an hour, somebody's going to tell you everything you ever wanted to know about themselves. Everyone loves to talk about themselves. So, you know, we as Americans, we can smell bullshit a mile away. I know if somebody's bullshitting me, you know. And so if the second I get a whiff of that, you're out. You're out. You're done. And that's, like I said, my trauma came into that later on in my career. I had to sort of make an exit, you know, and that's why towards the end of my career, I made that choice to go back to grad school, you know, and, and get away from that population after eight years when I realized very quickly, and it happened almost overnight for me, it was like I, I met my second wife and wanting to build a family with her as well. And I had to make a choice. Am I going to stay in this and do this for the rest of my career with nothing to show at the end of this except more trauma? Or am I going to take control of myself, my life, my future? Am I going to build my, my empire? Am I going to build my practice?
Am I going to go back to school? Am I going to become who I am today? Am I going to help other men? And once I did that, I hate to say it, but well, not, that, not that I hate to say it, but I'm happy to say it. A lot of that trauma went away. You know, I didn't feel like a salmon swimming upstream anymore. I became, I think, the man that I've always wanted to be, you know, and that was why I got into this field to begin with was to help people, you know. Oh, yeah, I had some great times. And, you know, like these, these, these monsters are out there, you know, and it's a game that um, if you're a young man or a young woman and you're getting into this field, you better have some resilience and a lot of support set up for you coming into this thing. Because if you don't, it's going to hurt. Eat you alive. Yeah. yeah. We eat you alive. Before we go into, like, I want to definitely talk about what you're doing now because it's it's amazing and it's awesome. Um, I just want to say one more thing to those of you out there who are getting into relationships. As he was talking about, ask the questions. Also, listen to your instincts. If someone is touching your child in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable and it doesn't look like anything's wrong, like putting their hand on your child's back or just touching them on the shoulder or whatever. If someone's being intimate with your child in a way that you feel isn't correct, it isn't correct. Like it's not okay just because it's happening. So if it makes you uncomfortable, listen to that and go deeper, listen to that and make space and create boundaries and say, look, you know, don't touch my kid. No matter how much you like someone, you don't have to give them permission to touch your kid. And never leave your child alone with someone that you feel uncomfortable with. Yeah. Just because I keep hearing that, you know, oh, I noticed these things and I felt uncomfortable, but I never said anything because I felt guilty or I felt like it was rude or inappropriate. Even family members don't have a right to touch your child without your permission. Nailed it. And listen to your kids. If they don't like being touched by someone, don't force it on them. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and my, I love, I love this about my wife, you know, because she's such an intuitive empath when it comes to how children are with their bodies. And one thing is we were talking one day and it was, I, I, I don't think it was my parents, my, my, my her, their grandparents, but somebody, I made a comment like, oh, so-and-so wants to give you a kiss, you know, go ahead and give, you know, and give grandpa a kiss. And she's like, no, no, if our daughter doesn't want to kiss anybody, she doesn't have to kiss anybody. I'm like, she's absolutely correct. hundred percent, you know, and that's what these offenders are counting on. They're counting on us being polite. Now, by the way, culturally, there are some cultural differences as well down here in Mexico. They love kids, you know, everywhere you go. Well, you know, if your kid's a little chubby kid with little cheeks, the women come up to your kid and they're like touching them and, you know, oh, it's so beautiful. And they're like, I get it. That's fun. That's, you know, it, it culturally, that's a thing. Um, back in Connecticut where I live, not so much. Right? Nobody's touching my kids. But when in Rome, we're down here. We're having a great time. But, um, yeah, I agree. So, how do you feel about the new movie that just came out? How do you feel about the sound of freedom and the conversation around it? Oh, hold on. There we go. Am I back again? Yes. I find it more fascinating about the media pushback on this film. 
that they're trying to mislabel or label the directors and the writers for something that they, that they are not. This is a movie about human trafficking and child exploitation in, in a developing overseas country. Okay. That message is long overdue. There are agencies out there that are NGOs, non-governmental organizations uh, that are governmental organizations. There's agents and officers that are embedded in these countries that are doing great work that are trying to get the message out. Um, and a film like this that's been on the shelf for eight freaking years because it couldn't get you know some marketing dollars, I think is absolutely horrific and dumb. It really is. And I'm glad that this movie is making the impact that it's making now and making money. Hopefully it will create more of an interest in um, other stories that need to be told like this. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a dark, you know, it's, it's, it's a dark subject, Krista, you know, and it's like, you know, you, you, you want to go out on date night, you're going to say, Hey, well, hey, honey, let's go out and see a movie about kids that are being, you know, sexually abused in, in, in a foreign country. You know, it's like, it's not really great, you know, Friday night dinner conversation afterward, but you know, it's, it, you know, having worked in the field myself, you know, I have, I have mixed feelings about it, you know, because I, I know when, and I'm going to see it, but I know that when I see it, I'm about to re-traumatize myself. I'm about to start looking at this thing and picking it apart and saying, oh, he's going to do this. This is what happens. This is the kind of offender that this person is, you know, you know, now what now, all right, now they identify the person who's going to do the arrest. Is that person going to go to jail? It's in another country. They get away with it. They save one kid. What about the other 10,000 that they didn't, you know, they weren't able to save? It's like my, my head goes to some pretty dark places when I watch stuff. That's why I don't watch crime procedural shows anymore. It's, they're stupid. You know, it's like you shoot your gun and you kill somebody and, you know, you, you, you're, you're, you're on the desk for the next six months and they're investigating you. They don't put you back on the street so you can shoot up bad guys still the next day. It's not going to happen. So, you know, working in this field for 22 plus years really, you know, made me a bit of a, you know, a jaded pessimist when it comes to law enforcement. But at the same time, um, you know, that film that you're talking about, you know, it, it's it's important and I'm glad it's out there. So, yeah. And, you know, and there are other organizations and this is what I want to encourage people as well. If you have an interest in this, any of the viewers there, if you do have an interest in this, you can volunteer. There are plenty of organizations that would be happy um, to, number one, accept your dollars and your time. You know, um, the Polaris, Polaris Project is one of them. Um, I think there's another organization called Love 142. They're in Connecticut. And uh, that's another human trafficking web uh, organization. So uh, there, are some, there are some great people out there doing a lot of great work. And if you do have an interest in that, go to their website volunteer show up open up a chapter in your own town you know most major cities um law enforcement is severely understaffed it's a very niche field to begin with right and um if if you can help out go for it you don't have to be an expert in law enforcement you don't have to be trained to have an interest in helping children you know or ending ending this you know this horrific epidemic that seems to be going on lately, you know, because it's been proliferating lately because of the internet, you know, access equals opportunity. That's, that's always been my philosophy when it comes to victims, 
you know, access equals opportunity. I've worked with sex offenders um, that were 70 year old men that if there wasn't an internet, these guys would building would be in the basement building little wooden ships and bottles as a hobby. But, you know, that does not say they wouldn't always have an interest in children, but now that they had access to the internet, suddenly now they have access to what they were really interested in. So when you allow your kids to be unsupervised and to go away for an overnight with somebody else at their house, ask the questions, who else lives in that house? You know, little Johnny's got a play date and he's going to spend the night, you know, at his first slumber party as a parent, I want to know exactly who lives there. And you can bet I'm, I'm going to be plugging in every parent's name into my Google browser just to see what pops up, you know, um, if that even ever is going to happen. I seriously, to be honest, I doubt that ever is with my kids. You know, I don't care how much I love the person or how, you know, they may be the coolest people in the world, but you know, it's just, it's just too many unknowns that are going on out there. You know, I need control over what, what my children has access to, not what other adults choose. So that is another aspect of the conversation. I want my kids not to hate me. I don't want my kids to feel like I'm controlling them. So I'm going to give them a iPhone at 12 years old and let them, you know, watch and discover and talk to whoever they want to because I'm the cool parent, right? That's the parent that's in trouble. Yeah. 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 Not only the iPhone, but also the internet. It's like drinking from a fire hose. Why would you allow that? Right? Children today, Teenage, teenage boys, teenage girls have more access now to naked bodies than um, the greatest emperors and kings of ancient times ever had access to naked bodies. It's like within an hour they have, they're looking at thousands of thousands and thousands upon, you know, different people having things with each other. You know, you name it, they're looking at it in their little developing brains that are still forming. And not fully formed until age 24, 25. And you want to give your kid access to that without any repercussions? No. Right. Absolutely. We can have an entire episode on the neurodevelopment of desire and arousal stimuli. And like, like we could go into the, <laughs> the, the negative repercussions of what is happening right now in our culture. But you know, that's a whole nother thing. Let's talk about, let's flip it to the good stuff and let's talk about what are you doing now that's bringing you so much joy and how are you helping others? Oh, thank you. Thank you, Krista. Um, well, I'm a therapist. I'm in private practice. So I'm a licensed, we call it an LADC here in Connecticut, a licensed drug and alcohol counselor. So what that means is I'm a master's level clinician, which is very niche oriented. I only work with people that have a primary diagnosis of substance, a substance use disorder. So drugs and or alcohol, right? Um, I can work with people um, that also have a co-occurring disorder. So remember I said jargon, how I hate jargon. So co-occurring means um, it means that they have a mental disorder, a mental illness or something going on mentally with them in addition to their substance use. So it might be that person is addicted to alcohol, they have an alcohol use disorder, and they're suffering from depression, and they're suffering from anxiety and they're suffering from PTSD, you name it. But their primary diagnosis has to be substance use. So I work with that population, but I've even niched down further. 
because of my background of what I what used to do. I was also in the military for eight years as a reservist as well uh, in the Navy. Um, Master at Arms, in case anyone's interested, which is the Navy's version of police officer. Um, because of what I did in a prior life. Um, oh, by the way, I was also a correctional substance abuse counselor. I, I retired in 2019 from the feds. You still hear me? I still coming in good? Okay. So I retired from 2019 from the feds, and I also went over to the Connecticut State Department of Correction as a substance abuse counselor. Did that for a year. Loved the work. Not so much of the staff I was working with. Loved the MA population. Uh, while I was working there, a position opened up with uh, one of the colleges here. So um, I'm now a full-time professor as well, uh, training the next generation of addiction counselors also in Connecticut. But I also have a boutique uh, private practice as well. So I only work with men. I only work with men that are first responders, military, ex-felons, people on probation or parole as well. I do not work with sex offenders, period, because that's why we call it private practice. You can pick and choose who you want to work with. So I always said to myself, once I'm done with them, I am done with them. I'm never going to work with them again. And my practice is thriving. I have, as you know, Krista, there's a lot of need right now for um, qualified therapists. And I said to myself towards the end of my career, what fills my cup? Why did I get into this to begin with? And that was to help people. And I realized throughout the course of that career of mine that I really started to develop the tools, the tools to build rapport, the tools to develop this, what we call no, no bullshit therapy, NBT, which is actually a real therapy. It's getting to the heart of the matter quickly, all right? Holding your clients to a standard and saying, hey, congratulations. You know, you, you set out what you wanted to do for the day or for the week. How can we push you a little further? And I find that only working with men, this is the population that I work with, I'm the most comfortable with. And men seem to respond to that type of therapy much better. All right. So um, it's, been, it's been a wonderful experience for me. You know, I'm 55 years old. I've got four daughters, one from my first marriage, I've got a 26-year-old and a 21-year-old, and they live with their mother. And I've got another wife right now. And she's a bit younger than me. And I've got two daughters, four and one and a half. Oh. And I'm here to tell you, life is amazing the way everything has unfolded. From going to, from working with the feds toward the end of my career and working with a very toxic environment of managers that were just terrible people to work with, to finally exiting that career and moving on to the next phase of my life and becoming a clinician. And once I did that, just like you, Krista, you know, everything sort of snapped into focus, realizing that for many of us in law enforcement, you know, or that are in the helping professions, um, trauma and burnout are very real, you know, and if we don't get in front of that, by the time you retire, what kind of quality of life do you have left for you? Are you going to be embittered? Are you going to be angry? Are you going to suffer from emotional, physical ailments? Are you going to not want to work anymore because you're just too traumatized to work? I love working. I'm never going to stop working. That's just who I am. I have a lifestyle to support. I've got a family to support. But more importantly, it keeps me, keeps my cup full. 
And I teach that and I tell people that when they come through my door. I've worked with so many police officers, so many people in law enforcement that are so, you know, traumatized, not only from the day-to-day work, but also management, you know, that they don't know where to go. If you're a police officer and you go to management and you're saying, hey, I'm having some suicidal thoughts here, you know, or maybe I'm drinking a little bit too much. Well, guess what? What happens? You get your gun taken away and you're putting the rubber gun squad, you know, behind a desk. And now you got to go to treatment. Well, most therapists are not going to sign off on the paperwork to give you back your gun. Why? Because of liability. Nobody wants to be responsible for that. I hate to say it. So that's why many officers are reluctant to go for help. I know I was. You know, it was it's it can be in many cases career ending. So what do we do? We drink. We blow off steam. We internalize rather than externalize, much like a pressure cooker. It's going to come out somehow, some way. And it may come out, unfortunately, out in the field when you're working. You may take it out on somebody, on the public. We've seen too many videos of that going on out there. And everyone's got a camera today. You know, this isn't the old days where you could get away with a lot of shit in law enforcement. You know, everyone's got a high definition camera on them. And they're always recording and they're always putting it up on some platform and on YouTube. You know, so, and I tell these guys that I work with, social media has been more of a career ender, okay, than, you know, you know any, any, any felon you've ever worked with or any bad mistake you may have made as part of your job. You're posting shit on there or people are posting stuff about you that's coming back to haunt you. Don't do it. You know, and if you feel like you're getting upset, if you feel like you're getting, you're starting to lose it, you know, seek out a professional who's got that lived experience, you know, perhaps if you're lucky enough to find one, but at least has empathy that can get you the help that you need, you know, or find your peers, find your circle of, and be vulnerable with your fellow officers that are out there, your fellow responders, dispatchers, whatever field that you're in, you know, because, you know, being the lone wolf ain't going to cut it. I was for a while. And let me tell you something, you know, I was really good at making cocktails every night. You know? So it was uh, worked out quite well until one day it didn't anymore. Right. That's usually the way of it, too. It's a coping strategy until it isn't. I am just super excited having had this conversation with you. Is there anything, anything we missed, anything that you would want to leave last words with our audience? Yeah, I just, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're going to have this in your show notes. You, if you need to reach out to me, um, if anybody's got any questions, you can reach me on LinkedIn. I've also got a professional website. It's my therapist website as well. Um, shoot me an email, send me a text message. Um, I'd be happy to talk to anybody if, you know, if, if you're somebody out there that's hurting and you're not sure what, what path to go down in your life or your career, um, and you want some no bullshit, um, advice, it's free. I know what it's like. Reach out to me. Okay. Um, I'll be happy to listen. I'll be happy to talk. And, um, if you need any help, I don't care where you are in the country, 
will get you the help that you need. Okay. Because, um, it's, it's, uh, we don't have enough people like that out there. And by the way, if you're interested in becoming a therapist yourself, speak to Kristen and I, right? Because we are the ones that are going to help you. You know, nobody else is, you know, we've got that lived experience and Krista is working to do the good work, um, bringing voices out there that um, otherwise wouldn't have a platform to share um, about their professional and personal lives. And, you know, once you hear somebody that's gone through something similar, you know, you're, you're less lonely and you've got less of a chance to feel as if you've got nowhere else to turn. Right. You agree, Krista? Absolutely. Yeah. We're all just By the a way, little ocean. We got to connect to make tidal waves. Yeah. By the way, it's executive, legislative, and judicial branch. Those are the three branches. I, I apologize. <laughs> uh, you know, and I knew that was going to bother me. It's going to bother me the whole podcast here. You know, it's like my brain just when you're, when you're down here getting too much sun in Mexico, um, you know, it's, it's just one of those things. So. Plus, that was I've a perfect retired. example of your brain's Google bar, that reticular activating system in play. Yeah. How you just get that search going and it'll the, just pop into your head. The RAS, you the reticulate head. activating system. I use that in my therapy also. Your brain is a guided missile. It will pull you in the direction that you want to go, consciously and unconsciously. Yeah. We should open up a private practice together. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. We will add your uh, links so people can get a hold of you. Um, and for all of you out there, ditto what he said. If, if you need someone to talk to, we answer the phone all the time. Uh, just reach out. I know I know. tons of my past guests have, have thrown out that offer that we're always answering the phone. There's someone who will listen. Uh, just the resources are there for you all completely private, all completely confidential. You're at no risk. Uh, we got you. We got your back. And we say that coming from knowing what that really means. So don't be afraid to take that first step. And thank you so much for being here with us today. Hope to see you again, Krista. Definitely. So thank you everybody so much for being here with us today. I know this conversation has been a little outside of our normal boundaries, but it's here now in your face. I wanted to take the opportunity to give you guys some real talk, to give you guys some real background uh, and to give you some answers because my inbox has been a little bit crazy over the past few days with questions about this that. Um, so many people don't know the extent of the problem and so many people don't even know what it means and, and that it exists. So it is a real problem. It is everywhere and you can protect yourself. You are not powerless and we don't do this show so that you can feel scared and so that you can feel vulnerable. We do this show to tell you how to protect yourself, to give you some resources and tools so that you don't have to be vulnerable. So you don't have to be uh, surprised and you have more power to ensure your children and yourself are safe. So if you have questions, if you want more information, absolutely reach out. I'm sure either one of us would be happy to answer. Um, another organization 
uh, Operation Underground Railroad or ourrescue.org has free training for human trafficking awareness and prevention. Uh, all you have to do is go on their website and register for it, no cost to you. Um, they have documents you can share, slideshows you can share. Um, if you have an organization, they'll send a trainer out to work with you. So they are an amazing organization. And I wasn't familiar with the others that he mentioned, but we will get the links up for all of those for you if you want to know more. So again, I'm with Battle to Be. And if you would like to connect with us, we'll also put the organization down below. So you're going to get a lot of links with this video and a lot of information with this video. Thank you so much for always supporting us. Uh, like, share, whatever you want to do, please reach out if you need our help. And again, thank you so much and see you next time.